This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, January the 11th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. are a little slow today. Got to pick up the pace over there in the brass section. Coming up on the show today, how is your wallet looking after the holidays? Aaron Broverman has some suggestions on how to overcome the holiday financial hangover. Significant flooding risks to cities around Canada and around the world. So how can cities mitigate that? How can they become spongier. Don Dickinson explores this issue in a preview of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. And the Canadian Council of the Blind is hosting a sports and recreation weekend in Atlantic Canada. Community reporter Natalie Fougere gives you the lowdown. But the show begins with the top story of the day, and it's a couple of different healthcare-related stories, starting in the provinces and then uh, getting to something a little bit bigger picture. BC's health minister has given an update on hospital capacity. Over 10,000 people are currently in hospital with a range of respiratory illnesses. Minister Adrian Dix says the province's hospitals are strained. Absolutely, we do. We have um, the uh, 9,900 plus beds in the system, base beds. We have the 2,300 plus surge beds in the system. But that doesn't mean it isn't challenging. It is very challenging. BC Public Health estimates that seasonal illnesses should peak sometime next week. Quebec's health minister has also given an update on the state of that province's health system. Emergency departments in the province are operating at 137% capacity. Minister Christian Dubé explains some of the factors. It's going to be difficult also for the next two months. Maybe COVID is not as bad, but influenza is still going up. And if there is a clear message on influenza, vaccination is still a possibility because we have only almost 50% of the population that is more vulnerable that could be vaccinated. A difference of 10, 15% make a huge difference at the AR. Dubé says the data shows nearly half of ER visits are non-urgent situations. And finally, Nova Scotia is the fourth province to sign a new health care deal with the federal government. Laura Osman has the story. The provincial federal health deals are part of a new health accord Prime Minister Justin Trudeau offered to premiers early last year after provinces demanded Ottawa help address a health care crisis, including a shortage of health workers and overwhelmed hospitals. The federal government said Nova Scotia plans to use the money to make sure 88% of people in the province have access to primary care. Another key element of the deal is to make sure patient records are more available by creating a single provincial health record system. Laura Osmond, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. I can assure you of two things. 
healthcare related topics will come up on tomorrow's news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. And healthcare will also relate to the daily polls. Before I share today's daily poll, let's get to yesterday's results at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday, a bit of a lighter fare. What is your favorite cold weather clothing accessory? 64% of you said sweater, 18% of you said long johns, and 18% of you said special socks. A couple responses here. Kelly writes in at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I have a first lined parka and caribou skin mitts I bought in Nunavuk. Lilana writes in, toque with ear flaps to keep the wind out. Smart, I like that. Robin comments, homemade mittens. Leona chimes in, soft, puffy, cozy house coat. Like that one as well. And uh, Shane writes in, a cowichan knitted toque. And John votes, all of the above. So hit a chord yesterday with that conversation, talking about your favorite cold weather accessory. Today's Daily Poll, much more serious. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Several provinces are experiencing significant overcrowding in hospitals and ERs. What is your biggest concern with the Canadian healthcare system? A lack of staff, hospital overcrowding, or surgical backlogs. And of course, you're welcome to go off the board as well. I want to throw this question over to Laura Bain first this morning. Laura, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Dave. Um, so you actually didn't know that this was such a timely and personal issue for me when you asked this question, but uh, I'm going to share a bit of a kind of, um, you know, personal thing here, which is that um, so my partner has been dealing with a health issue for the last uh, year and a half that's been really impacting his quality of life, um, causing pain and limiting like his activities. And the fix for the health issue is a relatively simple routine surgery. So he's been on that wait list for over a year, um, but there's just like no end date in sight. So uh, we made the decision and actually he left today uh, to go to Toronto to travel from Halifax to have that surgery done at a private clinic. Uh, and, you know, definitely like we're fully aware that he's very fortunate that he's able to do that. I know a lot of viewers just would not have that option to pay for the surgery, but we're also not wealthy. So it is coming at a big financial toll to pay for that, but it just wasn't... Um, like wasn't worth it because we didn't know when it would be resolved and it is just like impacting kind of our lives so much. Mm. So uh, I think that part of what contributed to the issue is lack of a family doctor. So he doesn't have a family doctor to have that person to advocate for him or to kind of help him be updated with where he is on the list and that sort of thing. And it was a pretty, quite a rigmarole sort of at the beginning to even get the referral and to get yeah. on the list because like trying to cobble together different walking clinic experiences and the walking clinics here in Nova Scotia are so overburdened. It's a completely different experience from, you know, when I have used them years ago now, like you don't even know, you, you're probably not even going to get in that day unless you line up at like two hours before the clinic oh opens oh for an appointment. Gosh. So it's, it's really not great. Um, 
But yeah, so this was, as I say, um, kind of a personal issue for me today and timely. So I'm going to say surgical backlogs, but also lack of family physicians, which is definitely a, a crisis here in Nova Scotia. Yeah, that's relatable across the country, a lack of access to a family doctor. And I think it's probably something that's not uncommon for our generation. I'm grouping the three of us together as sort of a cohort mm -hmm. of a generation where where it just, un unless you've had one for a long time, and in the case of myself, I've moved a bunch of times in my adult life. I, I don't have a family doctor. And I've, and I've definitely encountered that rigmarole when something's wrong. I've spoken before about uh, the five-year roller coaster ride that it took for me to get uh, some tumors on my vocal cords treated because mm -hmm. of a lack of a family doctor, a lack of specialists, surgical backlogs, and what I would also say was sort of a deep uncaring <laughs> of a couple yeah. of nose and throat doctors that I encountered along the way. Hey, just talk less. Uh, guys, that's not, <laughs> that's not how my profession works. That's not how this works. So yeah, Laura, I find that story to resonate uh, with me quite a bit, knowing that some of the hoops you have to jump through, that, that it's sort of an all of the above situation, right? All of mm -hmm. these things relate to one another, but I think definitely when you think about a lack of staff and the surgical backlogs, those two things really connect to each other. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's, as you say, it's all of the above and then more. So yeah. it is very concerning. I'm fortunate enough that I have a family doctor. I'm so grateful. Of course, there's like no wiggle room of, oh, you don't like your doctor, find another one. No, if you have a doctor, you are grateful for that doctor, but um, she's completely at capacity. I have asked her, you know, could she take my partner on? And she just cannot take yeah, anyone else yeah. on, on her caseload. But it's the same for a lot of my friends, you know, uh, lack of family doctor. And you can kind of see how those pieces don't get put together and health issues that, you know, could be addressed relatively straightforward at the beginning can kind of um, um, come together and, and accumulate. A little issue can become a big issue. Alex, I kind of went to one-on-one -on -one with Laura there, but I know you've got a thought on this uh, this question as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're very right to kind of tie some of these factors together. In, in my mind, I, I think the lack of staffing contributes to everything because, you know, if you look at lack of staffing, hospital overcrowding, and then surgical backlogs, I think if you had increased staffing levels, if you had staffing where they needed to be, it would help mitigate some of these things like hospital overcrowding where you could get care and treatment within a uh, reasonable amount of time that people are going to be treated and then taken out of the hospital system, freeing up more space. And then the same thing with the surgical backlogs. If you had more staff there, more support, then you can address some of these backlogs. You can get to people quicker. You can have more options available that you don't have to seek private or semi-private options as a, a necessity, as, as Laura explained in, in her case. So I think the lack of staffing really is an issue that we, we've seen coming for decades at this point. I remember even back in like the early to mid 2000s, there was a lot of talk of, okay, well, it's the baby boomer generation. They're going to be starting to ease out of the workforce. We're going to have major uh, staffing issues in healthcare and education and all these different kind of fields. So this is not a new issue, but this is something that's just truly been compounded since the pandemic. Yeah, it, it just sort of continues to build and build and build. At Accessible Media, 
on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's where you can vote on this poll. If you want to get into some longer thoughts, feel free to get involved in the comments section. You can also send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and tell your story. 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Climate change is posing flooding risks for various cities. So what can cities do to mitigate that? How about becoming spongier? Don Dickinson explores whether or not cities are sponge-worthy in a preview of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Climate change poses a number of risks to people. Cities in the last couple of decades have experienced quite a bit of flooding. Off the top of my head, I can think about Ottawa and Montreal, Nova Scotia this summer, as well as consistent floods in places all over British Columbia. So what are cities doing? What can they do to, to mitigate the impact of climate events? Well... Some folks are suggesting that cities should become spongier. That's the big idea explored in an, in an article featured in this week's episode of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the content curator of McLean's Magazine. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Don, I'm great. The article's name, uh, pretty straightforward, Make Cities Spongier. I'm curious, what would a sponge city look like? You know, Dave, it's such an education <laughs> working in this field because you never think about things like this, you know. Uh, typically, Canadian cities are designed to resist and filter out water, okay? So it's all a matter of hard surfaces and like concrete, and they direct water into drains and underground pipes and whatnot. And this kind of what they refer to as repellent design uh, disrupts basically the natural cycle of water, um, which usually soaks into the ground or evaporates, okay? So for decades, this type of urban design was able to handle and divert our rainwater. But of course, with climate change, there's a real problem there, right? Uh, in recent years, uh, there's been serious problems with storms and increased urbanization. Uh, so now, of course, we have overloaded pipes and uh, that were designed, obviously, for, for the inadequate amount of rainfall, but now we're getting so much more rainfall. So answer, of course, is a spongier city. And this is the really interesting part. So new infrastructure is built alongside the existing water management system to expand their capacity. So what they're basically saying is rather than ripping up everything and starting anew, these sponge pocket parks that they're um, building have playgrounds that families enjoy during dry weather. But meanwhile, uh, they have they also soak up some of the water and put it into underground storage tanks that hold storm water. And then, of course, that's used for various other purposes. Now, that's just one example, Dave. There's lots of examples in the article in McLean's that talk about how this spongier city can be uh, adapted. 
In a lot of cases, it's about making cities greener, which is really interesting uh, because it also improves biodiversity, right? It's it's a two-pronged approach when you go spongier. There are a lot of benefits. Now, the idea might be new for a few people reading McLean's this week, but the notion of a sponge system is not brand new. How is the investment paid off elsewhere in other countries? Well, you know, it's interesting. We seem to lag a little behind when it comes to things like this. You know, places like Denmark, um, uh, Germany uh, and China are global global uh, trailblazers in this kind of sponge city concept. In Berlin, lots are made with permeable uh, uh, asphalt. I thought that was a, an amazing thing. Uh, more porous forms of concrete. Uh, the new asphalt allows water to seep through its surfaces, collecting underground and uh, collected underground and trickle back into the surrounding environment. Now, Vancouver has made use of an urban design technique called tree trenches. Uh, holding tanks were installed underneath trees uh, the, on the main streets, and they collect excess rainwater from the road and divert it into the tree root system. I thought that was absolutely amazing. And there's just numerous other examples in the article of how they're building, uh, as you say, greener cities and 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 just directing that uh, the water in to better places. You know, Don, what strikes me as well is a lot of these solutions that are being put forward, some of these are not major infrastructural investments, right? This is this is not a billion and billions of dollars project. This is something that can be done a little bit piecemeal without necessarily a, a transformational investment. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Dave. Uh, and that's the nice thing about it, you know, because all of these major cities in Canada, of course, and Toronto in particular, since we heard the news last night about the property tax mm -hmm. increase, mm -hmm. uh, we're, all, uh, we're all a bit uh, cash-strapped, obviously, right? And uh, so cities have to come up with better ideas. They have to come up with them very quickly. And it has to be, um, you know, uh, economical. Don, let's move on to a featured interview in this week's edition of McLean's Magazine. Manitoba's brand new premier, Wab Canoe, the first premier in Canada of, uh, of First Nations descent. The article's titled Wab Canoe Talks by Katie Underwood. Don, Wab Canoe's been a public figure for a long time, and he's, he's not exactly a novice to the political game. He's been in Manitoba politics for a little while now. But what did you take away from this article about the premier? Well, you know, Dave, it, the one thing that really struck me is it really is a redemption story. Um, he makes it very evident uh, because he, he states in the article that before he was premier and NDP MLA, and even before he was a, a CBC broadcaster, which I, I wasn't even aware of, uh, he spent many, many years mired in addiction. Uh, he said he refers to it as a dark period that included an impaired driving charge and an assault conviction, uh, detailed very much so in his 2015 memoir, The Reason You Walk. Uh, so then, of course, the interview goes into this and talks about how he really came out of all this uh, in a significant way and decided that, you know, he was going to, you know, straighten himself out and, and get and get into uh, to politics and whatnot. And uh, yeah, he's, he's just done a wonderful job. You know, he, he's gotten clean. He's raised three sons. Um, 
you know, he's set up shop in the Manitoba legislature. And now, of course, he's really navigating, uh, you know, uh, immediate problems that he has to deal with, you know, mm-hmm. reconciliation, carbon taxes, crime, all the rest of it, just like any politician. I mean, he, he's got to deal with these things and he's absolutely determined, you know. So it, to me, it was, in fact, a real redemption story. Like, uh, uh, you know, he had his tough times and he... Uh, you know, through strength and determination, pulled himself out of it. Yeah. It's it's a reminder that in life, we are not defined by the mistakes we make. We're defined by the way we move on from the mistakes that we make and the struggles that we have are not always permanent. So Wab Canoe is a very, very interesting person. I have not had a chance to take in this read just yet, but I've been uh, watching and listening to a lot of long form interviews that he's done in the last couple of uh, months. Really, really interesting, honest, thoughtful guy. Uh, it's one, of the, one of these people when when you think about how sometimes politicians should be the best of us, he is one of these examples of someone who is very, very thoughtful and seems to get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he knows what needs to be done. Um, he knows that, uh, you know, he has to draw upon a lot of good people to get the job done. And uh, he's... You know, determined to make a success of it. Yeah, the people who support him are very, very optimistic about what Premier Canoe can uh, bring to that province. Don, let's uh, wrap up on uh, a a bit of a a fun, light note here. Rumor has it you got yourself (laughs) a new eight-week-old puppy. Uh, Don, I mean, come on. Uh, I I don't mean to age you here, but eight-week-old puppies, that's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Dave. You know, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. Oh, my God, I'd forgotten because, of course, we had a dog before. We lost our dog last year after 13 and a half years. And uh, it's a major commitment, as I said, 13 and a half years. It's um, something that you have to give a lot of thought to, which we did. But um, as you know, some of your listeners may know, we do have a farm. Uh, we don't live there. Uh, it's recreational at this point. I mean, eventually, probably we will live there. And um, we wanted uh, we spend our weekends there, and and we we wanted to replace our dog. Mm. It, it it's a it's a lovely, wonderful place uh, for for a dog. Oh, there's our boy. <laughs> He's on the screen now. <laughs> yeah. What 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 kind of dog? What is it? What is what does he look like? I can't I can't look at my confidence monitor right now. Okay, so he's basically, um, he's a tan, sort of a tan brown color, and he has uh, major white patches on his breast and on his face, and he has all four white paws. And we picked him out of a litter of nine, oh my God, seven, seven uh, females and and two males. And he was um, born on a Mennonite dairy farm and in St. Jacob's. And we saw the listing, and we drove up there, on Monday, oh my God, it seems like it's been a month, but it was just on Monday. And uh, yeah, they were fully weaned and uh, quite healthy. And we were very pleased to see that they were in a lovely environment, you know, because, you know, there is a warning about picking up uh, animals, you know, a lot of these puppy farms and whatnot. And we were obviously trying to avoid that very much. So so you have to do your research. You, you know, you have to really kind of be aware of the fact that there are people out there trying to make money off of puppies, which is kind of sad. Yeah. But 
but he's a he's a healthy boy and he's uh, the joy of our life as of the last three days <laughs> well don i cannot wait till uh he gets brought to the office so i can do a little bit of snuggling <laughs> and wrestling with him that'll be uh, wonderful don uh enjoy the little bits of sleep you get to uh, have here over the next couple of days eight week old puppy that that's a task enjoy it though <laughs> okay then dave <laughs> thanks very much <laughs> that's don dickinson a content curator with ami audio remember you can find uh McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio daily at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern time, unless you're listening to the show right now at AMIplus.ca, in which case I usurped it. I am a usurper, after all. Coming up after the break, the Canadian Council of the Blind is hosting a sports and recreation weekend in Atlantic Canada. Community reporter Natalie Fougere gives you the lowdown. This is Now with Dave Brown on (laughs) AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Canadian Council of the Blind will be hosting a sports and recreation weekend in Atlantic Canada. It takes place in May on Prince Edward Island. Community reporter Natalie Fougere has some more information. Hey, good morning, Natalie. Nice to chat with you this morning. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be here as well. Uh, Natalie, these sports and recreation weekends, why are they such a big deal for the community? Well, I will say that for many of uh, us in Atlantic Canada, the CCB members, the sports weekend is really one of the highlights of the year because there's so many different things. First of all, we have the chance to see some uh, some people that we've seen through the years that we've met through the, the council because we're a very like closed group within Atlantic Canada, um, especially like some people that used to go to uh, like the school for the blind years ago and that like a, that they're able to see their, their cla- you know, their former classmates. And um, some of us uh, who have been around in more he- recent years, uh, we're also able to meet a lot of people. We, ha- we also uh, have the chance to meet new people from uh, different regions and also do a good variety of um, different activity. I tell you, it's like a nonstop weekend. Mm. What, what are some of your favorite memories? I can tell that you've been a pretty regular attendee of these, uh, these events. Yes. Uh, so some of my favorite memories, there is one event on Friday night that's called the CCB Idol. So it gives the opportunity to people who have like a musical talent or it can be a, a poem or a, a story that they want to read. Oh, um, so <laughs> a I, talent so show. Anything. I love it. <laughs> yes, it is. And there's actually like judges that are there that, you know, that are chosen and there's like a, a like on sunday when we have banquet and prizes there's like uh, a, like a couple of prizes for the highest uh, the, the the better but everybody is still like equal like we all have a great t- a wonderful time and uh, i i also really enjoy um, I, I do enjoy like the bowling. We have a bowling on set on Saturday morning, and also the uh, we have a dance on Saturday night. So it's not just about the sports. There's a lot of wonderful leisure activities as well. 
It, you're doing a pretty good sales pitch here, Natalie. I, I'm getting kind of excited here. May 17th to 19th in Summerside PEI. What's the registration process like? Like, like I'm not a member of the CCB, nor am I in Atlantic Canada. Would I be allowed to register? Um, so uh, with people who are, uh, so I do believe that the way it works is, um, especially for like people that are in uh, Atlantic Canada, there is that if you're part of a chapter, usually the CCB chapters do have the registrations. Like for example, I'm in, here in Moncton. So uh, I, I did receive the registration uh, material. So I'm, I'm, we're going to make sure that our members that want to go are registered. But there's also a way of doing it as a, an independent member. People can also join as independent members and uh, it can reach out to the, uh, the organizers like for the, every step of the process. But uh, there's uh, there's always uh, different ways to uh, to register. We can we're we're hoping for having a, a good turnout this year. That's outstanding. So I'm going to give the website here if folks want to learn a little bit more about this one. I think you did a really nice job. May 17th to 19th in in British Columbia, like in Prince Edward Island. That's a that's a nice that's a nice time to be on the island. So I think you may have perked a couple eardrums here this morning, Natalie. So ccbnational.net, ccbnational.net to uh, learn a little bit more information on that one. Okay, so that's Prince Edward Island, but a little closer to home for you in Moncton, New Brunswick. The YMCA is proving to be a great place for folks to gather. Natalie, I'll tell you, the, I used to be a member of a YMCA in Montreal. It was way more than just a gym. I, I loved being a member at the YMCA. What kind of experiences have you had with the locations in Moncton? So I've been at the YMCA. I've been a member for quite a few years now. And um at first, my first impression was, okay, cool, there's a gym, there's a pool. But as I was going, because I do a regular morning routine with a friend of mine who lives in my building, and um, I I do like a certain workout, uh, like a, doing a little bit of cardio at the gym. I also have the opportunity to go in the uh, therapy pool, which is a little, not quite as hot as the hot tub, but it's still very warm water. And it's very rare. The gyms, the, the places, I mean, that have that type of pool. And I, I really, really love it because I have the chance to um, play with the, uh, well, to, to do a few exercises with the uh, water weights. So that's very fun. Uh, but outside of that is that I have the opportunity every morning that I go to meet some of the same people yeah. and we have the chance to talk and it's just a wonderful, it's almost like a family. I feel like I'm part of a family. And um, there's also like different classes and even rooms that we can gather in. I, I'm part of a group called uh, Friends with Abilities. Every second Saturday, we meet a little group of people with uh, different disabilities. And the YMCA uh, allowed us to uh, allows us to meet up as well. So they're, they're doing a great job over there as well. Yeah, Natalie, what you're describing sounds very similar to my experience. Yes, the gym was excellent. Yes, the pool was excellent. Yes, the sauna was excellent. Like, I loved all these things. But when you talk about being around some of the same people, it's probably one of the only times that I've been a member of a gym where it actually felt like community. Like, when you would walk in in the morning, you would shake hands with a million different people and give a bunch of different high fives. And, and like, there was a real sense of community inside the walls of the gym. Yes, there definitely is. That's why I love being a member. So, And it's very accessible. People are always willing to help yeah. when we need. 
Uh, speaking of some other positives around the YMCA, I uh, I remember when I was there as a student, there were a couple student discounts available. What are some of the other benefits that might be available in terms of affordability? So being a person that has a low income myself, what I find that's very beneficial is that there's a subsidy program. So every time that a person wants to become a member can take the form and then they, they uh, ask for... Um, proof of income and just a couple of things and um, the, that the uh, the rate can be a lot cheaper so that it includes a lot more people that can go. I'm going to give the email address here for folks if they do want to learn a little bit more about the YMCA's in the Moncton area, but uh, don't forget, no matter where you are in the country, there's a lot of really excellent programming going on at different YMCA's. So Natalie's got a positive thing to say about the Moncton locations. I've got nice things to say about Montreal, and I bet in your neck of the woods there's some good stuff too. So info at ymcamoncton.ca, info at ymcamoncton.ca. Okay, let's get to one more thing, uh, Natalie, you're really speaking my language today, by the way, like you're really talking about sports and recreation, talking about the YMCA, and now you want to talk about the movie theater, specifically accessibility at Cineplex theaters. And I've got a lot of nice things to say about Cineplex theaters as well. What's been your experience with some of the accessibility features on offer? Uh, well, I've been a, a regular movie goer myself. Uh, I find that, uh, first of all, it's great that they accept the access to entertainment card. So if I bring someone with me, uh, they're able to go in for free uh, with me at the movies. Uh, and also they have, I know with the, the scene card, there's some great, um, there, there's some great uh, ways to save. Like for example, I'm a cine club member, so I get a free movie every month. And with the free movie, I because of my access to entertainment card, I'm able to, uh, to bring someone in with me for free. So fi financially it can be very accessible. It also, um, they also have uh, great devices uh, that can help. There's one with the closed captioning for people who um, have uh, who are uh, hard of hearing, but there's also the uh, described video. It's called the Fidelio DVI described video, and it's a little bit just a small device uh, hooked up to a pair of headphones. And um, while people are watching the screen, I can listen to everything that's going on in the movie to the description that's going on. So I, I found, I find in the last few years since they have the described video, I realized like so much more that I'm gaining out of the movie. Natalie, what's been your strategy in terms of making sure that device is available to you? Because that's if, if I were to, if I was to offer one little critique or one little criticism, I have heard that from a few members of the blind and low vision community that sometimes it can be a little bit of a hassle getting that device. What's your strategy been? Because it sounds like you've had a lot of success with your local location in Moncton. I have had a lot of success, but I must say, Dave, that it's not. Uh, it, it's. Um, it, I'm totally with the people that have challenges as well because sometimes some of the staff are not always sure how it works if it's new people. And um, it, I have to, every time that I go to a movie, I ask for the device. I have to say that some staff, though, I have to say is so exceptional. They'll get the device for me like right away. <laughs> they know me, some of the staff. But the, there's other people that I have to really describe specifically what it is. And I will say that sometimes it does not always work. 
So that's a bit of a criticism as well on my part. But I got to say that probably seven or eight out of 10 uh, that they'll get something working for me. So that's yeah. great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a quibble. It's a criticism. It's an important one. But in the aggregate, Cineplex does a lot of really, really good work. Like, like I, I am very comfortable saying that on air from an editorial position. In the aggregate, they do a really, really good job. Natalie, one question on the way out here. What do you put on your popcorn? The real butter, layered butter, that's the best way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, you and I are on the same page today. Uh, two kernels in a pod. Uh, Natalie, have a lovely day. Talk to you soon. You as well. Talk soon. That's community reporter Natalie Fougere. Don't forget, if you want to learn more about Cineplex and uh, the Cineclub, a membership program, cineplex.com slash cineclub, cineplex.com slash cineclub. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index eked out a small gain in trading yesterday while U.S. markets rose ahead of today's release of the latest American inflation data. Toronto's TSX index crept 18 points higher to close at 20,989. New York's Dow Jones average gained 170 points and the Nasdaq added 111. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index surged 608 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.76. Cents U.S. Google says it has laid off hundreds of employees working on its hardware, voice assistance, and engineering teams as part of global cost-cutting measures. In a statement released early today, the company said the moves were made as Google aims for responsibly investing in our company's biggest priorities. The company is currently locked in a fierce rivalry with Microsoft as both firms strive to lead in the AI domain. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, there's a storm brewing in Ontario. Yeah, Dave, not just one storm, but multiple storms, because <laughs> starting today, if you look outside your window, you may be seeing that there are a few flakes falling. That is the first of a back-to-back -back system that Ontario and specifically most of Southern Ontario are going to experience starting today into the end of the weekend and possibly even into early next week. So this first system, it's a weak Midwest clipper coming up from the US. You're only going to be expecting to get around five centimeters maximum. You could even see less than that depending on your location. But it's once this system moves out tomorrow that the real impact is going to be felt because starting Friday, specifically Friday afternoon into the evening, roughly around where the evening commute home is going to take place, that's when this next system arrives. And with it, you could see upwards of 25 centimeters of snowfall when all is said and done. Uh, so there's going to be a bit of a different story for those around Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, like we are in, in Toronto, Hamilton, uh, you know, those areas. It may be less snow, but it may be a bit of a mix of rain as well. So even rougher conditions because you're gonna have that mix of snow and rain. Along with the, the moisture, you're also gonna get strong winds because there's gonna be gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour predicted. So it's going to be very rough on that commute home. Even uh, concerns around whiteout conditions are possible. Uh, the, the heaviest snowfall 
will take place Friday overnight and into Saturday. So it's if you are planning to be out Friday night, take precaution, have flexible plans because uh, things may shift uh, really quickly. And then along with those heavy snowfalls and, and heavy winds come frigid temperatures because in Ottawa on the weekend, you could foresee highs around minus 11. Oh, that's no, in Ottawa, no, it's minus 11 in Ottawa. That's no big deal. No, but this is the coldest that we've had so far this year in the season. Toronto minus 13 as a high. This is just kind of the start of the winter season. Obviously, we're not comparing it to the Prairies Day where you can see with wind chill up to minus 50. Yeah. We're, not get, we're not getting there. Yeah. But this is the coldest it's been in Ontario so far. I know you, Ottawa uh, residents are, are used to more, but when you haven't had it for a year, yeah. it can be I'll, a bit of a shock. To I'll, I'll grant you that. Minus 13 and 25 centimeters of snow. Toronto's going to call in the army. I, I can already sense it. <laughs> Alex, thank you for this. Yeah, not a problem. Dick. That's Alex Smythe with the weather story of the day. Coming up next, how's your wallet looking after the holidays? Aaron Broverman has some suggestions on uh, what to do to overcome the holiday financial hangover. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Here's a question for you. How's your wallet looking a few weeks into January? Did you know the average American spends over $1,000 over the holiday season? You probably find that relatable. So how do you dig out of that holiday financial hole? Aaron Broverman has some suggestions. Aaron is the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. Hey, good morning, Aaron. Nice to chat with you today. Good morning, Dave. Happy to help people dig out of their uh, holiday financial conundrums. It's 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 a tough one. Aaron, let, let's actually start here by playing armchair therapist. Why do you think people find themselves in these holiday financial hangovers? Why? I think because, you know, people love their friends. They love their loved ones. They want to do things for them on Christmas, but also... We are being constantly bombarded and assaulted with consumerism everywhere we turn, from social media to, uh, you know, TV to newspapers. And, like, I mean, so there's a lot of pressure to, like, perform at Christmas, get people something at Christmas, you know. Everyone in society is telling you, you know, this is what you have to do. You have to buy stuff for your people on, on Christmas. So it's really, really hard to like avoid it. Like, you know, you, you, it's a social pressure sort of thing. You don't want to be the Scrooge or the Grinch who just does <laughs> who just has to go to your family and go, I can't, I can't get you anything this year. You know, people be like, that's okay. But like behind the scenes, you don't know what they're you know, really saying about you. So it, so there's a lot of, like, social pressure and, and media pressure for this, too. Anthropologists would tell you that civilizations are based on reciprocity, and reciprocity just murders your wallet around the holidays. Aaron, I actually took a little bit of a stand this year, and I handled this with so little grace, kind of uh, the story of my life, handling things with very little grace. A few different people gave me holiday gifts, and I was like, 
oh, you really didn't need to give me a holiday gift that I felt the pressure to give one back and I put my foot down and I said, no, I will not be giving you a holiday gift in return. I will thank you profusely with, with grace, and but I will not be doing any kind of reciprocity. And in a lot of cases, the gifts that I was given were a food or snacks or treats and they went right out to the control room. I shared them with people to sort of have them share in my guilt. Well, there you go. Like, you were able to stand strong. Good on you, Dave. <laughs> well, for, uh, I'm or... not bowing to the pressure. <laughs> yeah, good on me for being a jerk. That's that, that's uh, that's that's the way it is. So, Aaron, <laughs> once someone is brave enough to gander at the credit card statement, and sometimes that does take a little bit of courage, what's the next step in terms of getting things back on track? Well, Dave, you already mentioned it. The first step is actually looking at your credit card statement and taking that big picture view and seeing what you actually spent on the holidays. I know it could be hard, but some of your debt is existing debt from other places, but you have to get a handle on like how much you actually owe before you can start tackling your debt. And then once you do, you can do the 50-30-20 rule, which is basically 50% of your budget goes to basic needs like food, insurance, shelter, those things that you actually need. And then 30% of your budget goes to uh, discretionary things such as, you know, your coffee in the morning, things that you just buy to keep you happy. And then 20% would go to savings because you need savings for the future and things like that. Now, the goal, if you're in debt like this, is to figure out what from that 30% pile can start going into paying off your debt or going into the 20% pile for debt and savings and that, and that sort of thing. Mm. So you have to take a hard look of like, what can I actually eliminate? And there's several ways that you can actually start paying things off. You can t do a balance transfer from uh, maybe a high interest credit card to a low interest line of credit. That's probably like the cheat code way to do it. Or you can actually buckle down and start with the highest interest uh, thing you owe first. So if you have a high interest credit card, that's what you should start tackling so that you don't have to pay more and more on top of what you already paid because of interest. I feel like I'm talking to a Dave Ramsey over here, a financial uh, broadcaster, talking about snow snowball effects and trying to tackle these high-interest loans. Uh, Aaron, I think what you're identifying is something that a lot of people are feeling, like the real thing that people are feeling, which is, oh gosh, I cannot wipe the, the slate clean on my credit card. I, But you have to, if you can, do more than just those minimum payments, because that's when things can really start getting away from you. Absolutely. Do more than the minimum payments. Absolutely. And, and that, you know, that extra money comes from eliminating uh, the, that discretionary spending. But also, don't punish yourself. Don't go all cold turkey on it. Leave a little bit of room to still have a life. You don't have to, you know, be paying for your Christmas expenses for the rest of the year. You just have to be a little bit more judicious about it. And uh, maybe, like, put away the credit card for a little bit. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. just start, you know, focusing on uh, paying things off.
Yeah, cash. <laughs> cash is king. Go go do the Dave Brown approach and just uh, walk around with a wad of cash and do it that way. Uh, Aaron, how much of this is also about consistent check-ins that someone should do with their finances beyond just these moments of crunch in January? I, I, I know for myself, Aaron, January and February, like that's when you get bombarded on television with the RRSP and mutual fund commercials. But I do use these first two months of the year to take a snapshot of where I'm at. I would say that the you know the Christmas hangover could serve as a wake up call, but once you start uh, building habits to paying off your debt, and once you have paid off your debt, keep that consistent and do these sorts of check ins because a lot of people are like you know if I don't look, it's not really happening. But really, you have to look, or else you're going to get in bigger trouble down the road. How about uh, looking forward? I know it already seems kind of a dread to think about uh, Christmas and Hanukkah of 2024, but how much how much should people really be already thinking about uh, a holiday budget strategy uh, 11 months down the road? I mean, I don't think I would think of a holiday budget strategy this soon into the year, but there are always other things you need to budget for, like a birthday or an anniversary that's coming up. So maybe don't call it a holiday budget because looking too far forward can seem uh, overwhelming and you're probably inevitably going to put it off. But <laughs> the next thing that you have to pay for, maybe uh, take some of those budget strategies you've learned, like the 50, 30, 20 rule and apply them to that, you know, birthday gift that you're going to buy someone or, or the next purchase that, that you're going to make. Aaron, so appreciate your insight on this topic. I know a lot of people are feeling the pinch. People are feeling the pinch in general, but there's something about January where it really resonates. Thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Talk to you in a few weeks. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. This has been uh, really fun. That's Aaron Broverman. He's the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada in one minute. Laura Bain has the entertainment report, but first, Honda is showing off their latest electric vehicles at CES. Mike Dubusky plugs in another edition of Tech Trends. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to CES. And welcome to Honda. Honda used the CES Tech Show in Las Vegas this week to show off two new electric concept vehicles. The Saloon, which is a gullwing-doored sedan, and the Space Hub, a passenger van. Mark Vaughn is the West Coast editor for AutoWeek.com. He says both signal Honda's EV design language. We expect everything to look like a crossover utility vehicle now, and these things are like these dapo, sleek spaceships from the future. Last year, a partnership with General General Motors to develop low-cost EVs fell apart, which means these new vehicles are our first glimpse of Honda's standalone EV ambitions. Honda might be a little bit behind on uh, EV car development. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Lots of news coming out of CES. Marco Flalo will stop by in about uh, 20 minutes to show off a couple of gadgets that caught his attention. And I want to put this on your radar. I'm keeping a close eye on a lot of the uh, unveilings and tech and products that are getting some buzz at CES. And a couple of times next week, you'll find me playing a game with different columnists and contributors called Useful or Useless. And we'll uh, run through a couple of uh, the tech unveiled at CES. Let's bring in Laura Bain to talk about entertainment. Laura, some hip-hop royalty is uh, planning on a Canadian tour. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ice Cube is coming to Canada for his Straight Into Canada tour. Uh, now, this jumped out at me because he's not making the usual Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal kind of circuit stops when um, when he comes, like most artists do. So sorry, Dave, if you want to see Ice Cube, you're going to have to travel. Um, he is kicking off his tour in Abbotsford, BC on February 20th before going to Penticton, BC. Uh, so I'm kind of curious out of these uh, different kind of stops, Dave, which one might appeal most to you if you're going to travel? So uh, as I mentioned, there's Abbotsford and Penticton in BC, and then he moves on to Alberta, where he does stop in Calgary and Edmonton, so kind of visiting some expected cities there. But then he visits Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Now, Rama is the only stop in Ontario. So Rama, Ontario at Casino Rama mm -hmm. Resort. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar? Is that a big venue there in uh, Ontario? Casino Rama tends to bring in quite a few uh, nostalgia acts, like maybe not the uh, 10, 15,000 people uh, stadium show, but a lot of these great nostalgia acts. Like uh, I know a few of the casinos around Ontario bring in bands like Everclear from the 1990s. I almost went down to Fallsview Casino for one of those. So I'd say Rama's probably about five-ish thousand people or four-ish thousand people in their, uh, in their concert hall. It's allegedly, I've never been to Rama, allegedly it is a ton of fun. Apparently, it's one of the best casinos in all of Ontario. Well, you can pick up uh, tickets for Ice Cube. There's still some available. I checked for around eighty bucks if you're if you're interested. Ooh, but you know where they get you? The actual cost of the hotel room that night. That's that's yeah. that's the problem. And because believe me, if I'm going to see an Ice Cube concert and whoever's with me, we're not driving home after that. There's going to be a fun head. Well, plus if you're doing any gambling, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it be expensive or lucrative, depending on how it goes. Now, his stops in the Maritimes actually kind of surprised me. So uh, St. John, New Brunswick doesn't see a lot of concerts. A lot of the big acts go to Moncton for sure. And he is coming to Nova Scotia. He's actually got two stops here, but not in Halifax. He's going to Truro before wrapping up in Sydney on March 5th. So the closest stop to me is in Truro at the Rath Eastlink Community Center, which I had never heard of before. I looked it up. It's about a 3,000 seat venue uh, there. And tickets are actually like almost sold out. Uh, so if I want to get a ticket, I'm going to have to hurry. They range in price from about 110 to $160. Not sure why we're paying more out here than you are in Ontario, but that's how it is. So interesting. Laura, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of like picking up on a theme here. I get the impression that some of the geographical choices here are interesting to you. They're interesting yeah. to me as well. The fact that a lot of these stops are not necessarily the Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, even even like the Halifax, right? Not yeah. necessarily going to the big markets, but choosing slightly smaller markets, not undeserving places, not places where people would not enjoy going to a show and getting a concert. But but yeah. why why do you think he's doing that? I, I, I actually don't even have a good answer to my own question. Usually I do. Why do you think he's doing that? Well, I was hoping you might be able to kind of enlighten me, Dave, because I was thinking about this and I was doing some searching online about this concert and trying to find something because I'm really curious about that as well. Certainly, if he came to somewhere like Halifax, you know, he doesn't have to do the Scotiabank Centre, which is a huge venue. There's other kind of medium sized venues. So uh, why do the why do it in Truro? I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think it's really cool, uh, you know, because people in a lot of these places don't 
typically get to stay home and go to concerts with major performers and also just thinking about the impact on local business, right? As you mentioned, people are going to tend to stay overnight. They're going to be eating. So I'd like to see... I'd like to see more of this. The only thing I could really think of, I was like, well, it is called the Straight Into Canada Tour, right? <laughs> and he's going to Saskatoon in the winter, so you can't really get more Canadian than that. Yeah, I wonder if this might be a little bit about artists trying to control their destiny. And one of the things when you go to bigger city centres, even if maybe you're not going to the Scotiabank Centre like you mentioned or playing at the uh, whatever, whatever big name arena in whatever city it is, I, I wonder if it might have something to do with lower costs to the artist to use some of these other performing venues and maybe being able to recap and recoup a little bit more of their own money and their own proceeds because that's become one of the big conversations here in the last couple of years where artists are saying these ticket brokers, I'm not going to mention them by name, but these yeah. ticket brokers and these venues are absolutely crushing us. Really good thought on it. And also that allows the, uh, you know, performers to keep their ticket prices reasonable because 80 bucks to go see Ice Cube, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of times it's hundreds. I mean, even $110 here in Truro, I thought that's not bad because, you know, a lot of concerts cost hundreds of dollars. So uh, maybe that is some of the thinking behind it who knows but i i like it <laughs> it does make me sad to think that now 80 dollars is the margin for a, a cheap concert ticket but uh but it's the truth it's the reality i i'm going to see a death cab for cutie in the postal service in toronto later this year and i think the tickets were like 170 or 180 which was still less than i paid for blink 182 last year so hey nostalgia isn't costing me as much money this year so we'll take that as a win yeah, it's all be it's all become relative. I had a friend who recently paid like I don't know six or seven hundred dollars to go see Pink, and I mean obviously oh. Pink is is huge, but I don't I don't think I would. I don't know. There is a point where I just kind of get priced out of it, and I would just maybe, especially with like the rise of concert movies, that might be a yeah a better way in that, for me. I definitely preferred paying twenty five dollars to see Taylor Swift on a movie screen uh, instead of thirteen hundred dollars uh, yeah. to go see here at the Rogers Center. Hey, Laura, thank you as always for this. And on the way out the door, happy birthday. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> That's Laura Bain with Entertainment Report. Birthday girl, Laura Bain. Coming up after the break, I've got a news story for you from the financial world. Bitcoin exchange traded funds have now been approved in the United States. Got a story all about that one coming your way. And then Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. The NHL season officially at its midway point. Brock wants to discuss a couple of surprising storylines. And then I'm going to ambush Brock with some breaking football news. The face of football coaching has dramatically changed in the last 14 hours. And I want to get Brock's take on a bunch of that stuff. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv, AMIplus.ca, and the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, January the 11th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, a wide range of artificial intelligence technology is debuting at CES this week. Mark DeFlalo gives you the scoop on a couple of devices, including the Rabbit R1. And American fiction has been garnering buzz during awards season. Michael McNeely reviews the flick. Just one news story to start the hour, but I wanted to give you a peek into the world of cryptocurrency. Y'all know me, crypto bro Dave Brown over here. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has approved the trading of Bitcoin ETFs. Michelle Zadokian explains. It was a reluctant approval, but an approval nonetheless. The U.S. regulator said in its decision it's still deeply skeptical about cryptocurrencies and that the agency doesn't endorse Bitcoin. Allowing Bitcoin ETFs to trade in the U.S. could further push crypto into the mainstream and open up an easier way for investors to trade such assets. The decision came right before the deadline and about 24 hours after a hacker posted a fake tweet on the SEC's account incorrectly saying it got the green light. Canadian regulators approved this country's first Bitcoin ETF in February 2021. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Michelle. Let's go from the world of finances to the world of sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, lots of stuff to chat about in the sports world today, but the passing of time always amazes me. It's officially the mid-season for the National Hockey League. Most of the league has played over 40 games at this point, and there are a couple surprising storylines that you wanted to lay out here. Yeah, so I'm going to give you three storylines, and I want to know which of any of the storylines, if I told you this was going to happen at the beginning of the year, which of them would you most buy into, and then which are you most surprised that has happened? So the first one is the Edmonton Oilers would be in a playoff spot after they started 0-8 to begin the season. The Vancouver Canucks would be near the top of the league, only behind the, uh, no, sorry, of the Western Conference, only behind the Winnipeg Jets, another Canadian market. Or William Nylander would sign, would re-sign with the Toronto Maple Leafs before the All-Star break to an eight-year extension. Get your garbage Toronto Maple Leafs away from here, Brock. Like, I, like I'm just so <laughs> tired of it. I'm so tired of the William, William Nylander talk. We reacted to it in real time on Monday, right when the news broke, and I think we covered that real good. I, whatever, he signed an extension. Like, that doesn't surprise me. It's not unsurprising. It's, it's right there in the middle. I think what truly is surprising is the success the Vancouver Canucks have had, and it's in a lot of different ways. It's top-tier talent. It's great goaltending it's scoring goals from time to time as well crucial goals pushing all the right buttons i'd say the most surprising is the success vancouver's having the edmonton question the way you frame that they got off to a historically bad start they fired their head coach but they've been pretty amazing over the course of the last 20 games or so and they're right back into the playoff mix and right back into the possibility of maybe possibly even winning their division with some of the scuttles that the vegas golden knights and the uh, and uh, that the vegas golden knights are having as well as the la kings so i'm not surprised that edmonton's good i'm very surprised that vancouver is this good 
I I am too. I mean, I remember when we talked about the uh, Vancouver Canucks, we were just like, just don't embarrass yourself. Yeah, yeah. Don't embarrass yourselves. Like, like that. That was that was the literal conversation we had. And by the way, just for the record, I threw in the William Nylander thing so you'd rip on me because annoy me, just to annoy me. But uh, yeah, no. I mean, for me, I I and the other thing that I put here with the with the Edmonton Oilers, Dave. I'll be honest, I thought they would struggle to be around 500 to be honest like I when they started so badly I thought oh my like they're coming with their post-game press conference and it's like they're just they just sound and look defeated and so for me those are the two big sort of things that I look at and I say yeah this is good Winnipeg I'm I'm also surprised about but Vancouver simply because as we mentioned we said don't embarrass yourself and they are not embarrassing themselves they are they are playing really, really well from top to bottom, and credit to them. Yeah, you and I gave Winnipeg some love on Monday as well, and they certainly deserve it. But yeah, Vancouver is Vancouver continues to be one of the absolute best storylines in the entire league, and uh, they play some really exciting brand of hockey as well. So that that's a win-win for everybody involved. Okay, Brock, let's uh, get to some major changes for football coaches in both the National Football League and the American Collegiate level. In the last 14 hours, three gargantuan news stories have broken. This morning, the report is that Bill Belichick, six-time Super Bowl-winning coach, out in New England. Late yesterday, Pete Carroll, Super Bowl-winning coach of the Seattle Seahawks and multiple-time national champion at the University of Southern California, out as the head coach in Seattle. And also, late yesterday, Nick Saban, multiple-time national champion at the University of Alabama and once at Louisiana State University, retiring. Brock, you cannot tell the story of professional football and collegiate football of the last 25 years without talking about these three men. What a seismic shift in the world of coaching. I'll say this because this is the first thing that came to my mind when you were talking about this. I would rather retire than be out and or quote unquote be fired. Um, that's just a better, you know, story to say that you did it on your own terms. And sure, maybe Bill Belichick and um, and Pete Carroll were were part of the decision making, and it's a mutual agreement. But just to step out on your own terms is something that. I would rather do if if I was in their shoes. But again, you can't take away from the success that all three of those individuals have had. I, I look at Bill Belichick and I say, you know, you, you've won, you know, six Super Bowls. We talked about this with Tom Brady when he retired. What more do you can you prove? Do you need to prove? He's the best NFL coach, period. Full stop. That's it. Like, and so for me, it's like, I'm not sure why he came back. Like, I, if I was him, I would have retired with, with Tom Brady. Now, I know Ego would probably tell him, no, I want to do this without Tom Brady, just like Tom Brady wanted to do it without Bill Belichick. But for me, it's like you don't you don't have much more to prove. Um, and, and all three of these coaches, Pete Carroll, same thing. I, you know, you don't, you don't have much to prove. And I, and I think Pete Carroll, I loved him because he's, He's always so high energy, you know. He he just he's so invested in the in the sport. He's running up and down sidelines. He's he's invested with his team. You don't see that so much with Bill Belichick. Rather, we know him as a 
as a cranky kind of guy. And and Sabin with the college success, I mean, college, that's where I'd want to be success because I have my hands in on the next generation and and that's where I would want to be successful myself. Alex Smith and I were trying to do the math this morning. We believe it's 15 total championships between the three coaches. Just a remarkable, remarkable achievement since the uh, turn of the century. Really, really good stuff. And football is going to be a much, much different place starting this morning. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson, the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up next, a wide range of AI technology is making its debut at CES this week. Marco Flalo gives you the scoop on a couple of devices, including the Rabbit R1. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. CES is underway in Las Vegas. The event has been showing off all kinds of cutting-edge technology from companies all around the globe. There are two devices that caught Mark Aflalo's attention. Mark is one of the hosts of Access Tech Live. Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Dave. You say two devices. I must tell you, that list has probably grown to about 250. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but we don't have time for all 250, nor do I have the brain capacity to hold all that information in my head. Yeah, Mark, I'm uh, keeping a close eye myself here. I want to start playing a game on the show next week when CES is done and dusted called Useful or Useless. So yeah. we'll uh, talk about some of the so we'll talk about some of the technology <laughs> that got shown off and whether or not uh, it lands in one of those two categories. And I'm not going to lie, this first. Uh, product you're bringing to the table, I'm thinking it might lend itself a little closer to uh, the use list side. Really? Uh, I, okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is where you're going to have to do a little bit of a sales pitch for me. One of the items was re revealed was an AI device called the Rabbit R1. Some people are suggesting it could replace the smartphone. Why did this one jump out to you? Because I'm not going to lie, Mark, I read about four different articles about this yesterday, and I still don't quite get why I would want it. So, so the R1. Let me let me let me describe what it is. It looks it's about half the size of an iPhone. So it's shorter in stature. It's about the same width, about the same thickness. It has a screen on about two thirds of the left side of it, a little analog scroll wheel, kind of like old BlackBerry style, and a camera that is on a pivot. It's almost like on a gyroscope that it can go front and back. And the whole purpose of this Rabbit R1 is to um, reduce the friction between yourself and apps. You know, you have a phone you want to call an uber you have to go to the uber app and then go call it you want to order costco you got to go to instacart you got to constantly get out of one app go into another app to do things the goal here of this device is to be a voice controlled with less visual components to it so that you don't have to worry about taking it out every time and just ask it in natural language what you want to do so call me an uber and it does all the heavy lifting it does what it needs to do in terms of connecting to uber ordering that uber and sending it to your location and getting of all that friction between the whole start and stop point and and that is what they're trying to do and it's very similar to that humane ai pin that was announced quite before the new year um except the package here is different and the price is a lot different too um 199 for this device when it becomes available in march or april so yeah i mean 
the pitch, I mean, the pitch is really, if you find yourself on your phone a lot and you find yourself struggling to constantly launch an app to do this or to do that, this helps remove that from the equation a little bit and just get to the point at the end of the day. I So I, the way that you describe it, definitely it starts to bring me a little closer to the useful okay. side of things. But Mark, I, I I really just don't see myself carrying a second device, right? Like I've got yeah, a smartphone, it. it can do it. Uh, in a lot of cases, if it's an Apple or, or, or some of the so more sophisticated Google operating systems, a lot of that voiceover technology will already mostly let you do what this rabbit's yeah. putting on offer. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And, you know, I think that this is... Um, maybe a bridge device, maybe a gap device for people who don't necessarily want to carry a phone or maybe the younger generation. It's it's somebody is trying to take these natural language models like the chat GPTs of the world and put it to some kind of good use. And I don't think we're quite at the point yet where anybody has really figured that out. Yeah. And, you know, I do the kind of comparison with Apple's, you know, Vision Vision Pro headset. You know, from your perspective, from the blind low vision, you know, it's a headset. Just put in, put in AirPods. Give me the same experience with AirPods. Why do I need this? <laughs> heavy $3,500 thing on my head, you know? So I, I totally get where you're coming yeah. from. But, you know, it's another cool piece of tech that I think came out of CES that's different. There's a lot of the same, a lot of recycling yeah, of yeah. stuff. And this stood out to me as being different. You know what I think about too, Mark? I think about technology sometimes as a stepping stone, where maybe the end goal of what they're trying here with this artificial intelligence becomes something that's a little closer or more akin to artificial intuition, right? That, that, that there is yeah. going to be an experience down the road where oftentimes I'm telling myself, gosh, it would be so easy if I, if I could just have the computer know what I'm thinking and it would just do it. Yeah, or, or if it could just, you know, again, it, it, you, we all want Jarvis. We all want Jarvis from Marvel Comics, right? We want to just have a computer that's listening to us all the time, and when we ask for something, it just does it and skips all the steps that need to get from A to Z. They will, you know, If we want to say, you know, write an email to Dave saying I want to be there tomorrow. Why should there be any other steps than it knowing to open an email program, write the email, hit send? Like, I, why why should I have to go through those steps in, in, in the proper order to do it? And I think mm. we'll get there. We'll get there. It's coming. Now, Mark, the other device that caught your eye, to me, is an interesting one. And it does land closer to the useful side of things. The notion of a health tracking ring is not brand new, but they're certainly evolving. And that's where a Movano's Eevee ring has maybe got a bit of buzz this week, a smart ring designed for women. What particularly are they touting as the benefits of this particular uh, AI-powered uh, ring tracker? Okay, well, so to start, obviously, you've got the basics. You've got measuring health and wellness, things like your heart rate, your blood oxygen level, your sleep stages, your activity, and your menstrual cycles. That is the key that makes it, obviously, driven towards the female audience, which is what other smart rings don't actually have in them. It's something that Apple has been you know, slowly bringing to the Apple Watch, but it's taken some time to get there. So they're marketing this right out of the gate towards women, both not only in function but also in style. It's a much more stylish ring. It comes in different finishes is, you know, a nice shiny either gold or silver, depending on the color, rose gold if you want, um, which is pretty cool. And it uses the an app to obviously analyze the results and tie in to your existing health data and let you share that with different people. But of course, the app is what powers everything and what takes that data and gives you insights into your health. And it gives it from that more female perspective. So it uses things like your menstrual cycle, et cetera, et cetera, to help obviously a woman more, you know, engage with their body. Okay. And, and, and that's why I think it's kind of unique 
because it's not something that's just broadly sold that they really are targeting at a specific niche and i think they're doing it properly yeah, my friend, uh, my friend Dan got one of these a couple of years ago. It's it's been almost four or five years since he first showed one of these uh, smart tracking rings, and he loves it. His partner got it for him, and he Man. finds compared to a smartwatch, it's so much less obtrusive, and it is a little bit stylish. Like he he loves his his ring tracker. He really does. Well, so I've I've worn the Ura ring, which is probably the one he got, which is, um, you know, it's been out for about four or five years. And it's funny because I don't wear jewelry. Like, I don't wear a wedding ring. Um, I don't wear necklaces or anything. But when my wife got it for me, hoping that I'd wear it as a wedding ring because it was cool and I had some tech in it. <laughs> and I do wear it. I actually do wear it a lot. I'm not wearing it now, but I wear it to sleep to just kind of track my health. And it's it, we've become obsessive now over small things that we never would have even thought about, like your body and your health. And because we have these devices that have these multi-functions like a ring or like a watch that can also, by the way, give you all this insight into your health, I think we've become a little bit obsessed with it. And that's why I choose not to wear the expensive watches that I've collected over the years <laughs> and wear the Apple Watch or the ring that, you know, is made out of plastic and then watches my health. It's, it's so weird. Mark, one note on the way out the door here. Uh, you and Steven Scott and the whole gang from Access Tech Live have been doing some really neat stuff around your CES coverage. You had a special live broadcast yesterday at noon. You have another one coming down the pipeline today at noon. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it outright. The way that you've set up a camera down there and you're just rotating in all kinds of guests throughout the program is amazing, creative, so well done by you and your production team. Just a fantastic approach to covering CES. It's amazing what you can do when you hire a couple of hamsters in Vegas. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. No, I really, I do appreciate that. We, uh, you know, we put a lot of effort into it and we're just trying to give people as much insight into, it, especially uh, on the accessibility and the disability side of things, of the things that come out of CES because there's never enough, enough focus on it. So uh, hopefully we're doing a good job and we're going to continue that today with some really, really cool guests lined up, including one that just won an award last night in the pitch competition from the CTA Foundation. So oh, fantastic. all that coming up today. Fantastic. Yeah, the interview you guys did yesterday about some of the uh, technology geared towards uh, the deaf and hard of hearing community yesterday was fantastic. Fantastic. So cool. We did some stuff off air that we're going to be bringing over the next coming weeks that I think are uh, equally as good, if not even better. A conversation with a company called Teach Access and Verizon. We, we, had, we ended up talking for about 30 minutes because we could. So wow, wow. Uh, lots of really cool stuff. CES is the show that keeps on giving. We'll be talking about stuff from CES for the next couple of months. Oh, lovely. Hey, Mark, have a great show today. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Dave. That's Mark Aflalo. He's one of the co-hosts of Access Tech Live. You can find that show Thursdays, noon Eastern on AMI-tv. And don't forget to check out the uh, special episode they did yesterday as well. Really, really good stuff. You also want to put this on your calendar. This weekend on The Pulse on AMI-audio, the show dives into the world of fruitarianism. Fruitarianism. Andrika Delanerol told me to practice that this morning, and even that didn't help me. Fruitarianism. Host Joita Gupta chats with Jacqueline Alness about her book, the Fruit Cure, the story of extreme wellness turned sour. Oh my gosh, I love it. That's the Pulse weekdays at two, weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio, weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, American fiction has been garnering some buzz during awards season. Michael McNeely will have a review of the flick. But first, here is the Parasport update with Greg Westlake. Hello, welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in collaboration with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Greg Westlake. 
Rounding out 2023, a historical milestone took place for Canada's top blind hockey players, as the first ever blind hockey game was played on NHL ice. As part of the 2023 Eastern Regional Blind Hockey Tournament, 27 players took to the Canadian Tire Centre in Ottawa for the first of a three-game series. Over the three games, the Nationals bested the Capitals, winning the Eastern Regional Blind Hockey Tournament. Staying in Ontario and hitting the ice to welcome in 2024, Canada's women's para hockey team held their selection camp in Thorold, Ontario. 26 women received the invitation to the five-day camp, featuring a series of practices and scrimmages for the squad looking to represent the Maple Leaf. The camp featured 18 returnees from the silver medal team at the 2023 World Challenge and three members who represented the bronze medal winning team at Worlds in Green Bay, Wisconsin this past summer. Heading to the land down under, Australia plays host to the first round of the 2024 UCI Paracycling Road World Cup next week. From the 15th to the 17th, Canada's top paracyclists, including friend of the show and world champ Nathan Clement, will be racing for gold in Adelaide. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's award season in the film and TV industry. And one movie that's been getting a whole bunch of buzz is American fiction. Some critics are saying the film may be the best picture of 2023. The book, the film, is based on the book Erasure and stars Jeffrey Wright. Before I welcome in Michael McNeely for his review, here's a clip from American Fiction. In a bookstore. Excuse me, uh, Ned, do you have any books by the writer Thelonious Ellison? Ned uses a tablet to check. Yeah, this way. He leads the customer through the shelves. Here you go. They stop before the African-American yeah. studies section. Wait a minute, why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me, Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. He taps one titled The Haas Conundrum. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. You don't make the rules. Ned shakes his head. Moments later, Ellison carries his books. I'm just going to put them back after you leave. Don't you dare, Ned. Do not you dare. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has thoughts on the film. Michael is right next to me in beautiful Studio 7 here at AMI HQ, alongside his intervener, Jillian. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. I have to say, I left that clip. I always look forward to seeing what our colleagues put together for these clips, and I'm I'm very happy they managed to get the whole joke in there. Yeah, it's, I, it, that clip really struck me this morning uh, as well when I was uh, watching it, just to get a feel for the movie. It's one that has been garnering some buzz, but I'll confess, Michael, I have a tendency not to watch too many movie trailers, and I actually don't know what this movie's about at all. So what's the premise? Well, it's a little bit of a complicated one, but the story is about Theo, and he is played by Jeffrey Wright. You've seen him in the clip. Um, he is 
a medium successful author that he gets by to make enough of a living for himself, but he's still having some challenges paying the bills for his alien mother. Um, so what happens is, ultimately, he tries to play a joke. Because he's black, he decides to write a book in a stereotypical style, because he wants to impress upon other people that the stereotypical style is inappropriate, and it's just catering to white people. However, the joke backfires spectacularly, and he ends up making lots and lots of money. So the issue, then, is whether or not he can live with himself selling out—I put that in quotation marks—selling out to the white mm. people, or does he have to come out and um, be authentic? Right. When, when your satire goes wrong and people take your satire in utter earnesty and having to deal with that as an artist, what are some of the themes or messages that you pulled out of American fiction? I think you just nailed one of them. It's the difficulty of satire. It's you have a joke, you want to show other people your joke, but they just don't get it. Um, I think it's important to mention that Jeffrey Wright is a light-skinned black man. So he deals with various aspects of colorism. Um, a lot of people may think that he's not black enough. Well, a lot of people may think that he's too white, which is some of the challenges that he faces in the book that I've read, the book that this is based on, Erasure. Last discussion about it in the film, but I think people would get that if they have an understanding of issues. Um, I think one of, the, one of the important aspects of the story is representation. So you can have stereotypical representation, but just because something is a stereotype doesn't mean it didn't happen. It did happen for some people, like we talked about um, Push by Sapphire. That's a, that's a story that's grounded in some reality. Even though people may make that into a stereotype, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So I think that's one of the issues that is sort of under the surface in the story, because when he makes the satire, he's making fun of black communities and the way of talking, but they are black communities and there are that way of talking. So what is he trying to do? Mm. Um, and ultimately, it's a story, I felt it's 25% satire and 75% um, family drama. But I think you're going to ask me more about that. Well, I, I'm going to hold off on the family drama component for a second, because satire as a form of comedy is difficult to do. Oh, yes. whether, whether or not uh, you start dealing with the way people perceive the satire, just in general, satire is a difficult way to make people laugh. But when it works, oh my gosh, does it work. How did the film balance its comedic intentions with some pretty important themes that you were just talking about, right? Racism, colorism, and the way in which a community accepts or doesn't accept you. How did it balance the comedic element with some pretty serious themes? Well, I thought that's the one thing you didn't want to talk about with this question, which is the family drama, because it's interesting, right? It's like a children who is because what you have is you have the satire. People are like, ha, 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 this is funny, this is good you know, offend some people. But this person is a family man, and we're actually getting the representation we need from him, from his family. So he has to take care of his alien mother. And spoiler alert, Tracy Ellis Ross doesn't last very long in this movie for a good reason, so he has to deal with that. Uh, that's his sister. And it's just... A story about, to me, it's a story about a man who's been hard-pressed 
to do good by his family. And the satire comes in when he's doing work. So it's like a family movie where the man goes to work. That's the satire, the work aspect. Mm. But it makes sense to me, because that is his work. So he balances the work with his home. The home, there's no satire in there whatsoever. Okay. It's serious. We're not making fun of Alzheimer's. We're not making fun of losing your sister. We're not doing any of that. So that is why I have mad respect for this film. But I also have challenges with the way this film has been marketed, because it doesn't lean into the family aspect. Oh, it's like, bam, we're right, surprised right. with heartfelt drama. Wow. But so to me, when I'm going to talk about this movie for the rest of my life, I'm not going to call it a satire. I'm just going to say it's a family drama that has some satirical elements okay. when you talk about his workplace. You know, th what you're describing is a tightrope act, right? Like, for, for, from a creative point of view, that is a tightrope act to try and tell that serious story and still make people laugh or still hit those satirical notes. I kind of get the impression this film really made an impression on you in a positive way. Yes, I think a lot of films in 2023 have done a lot of tight wire acts or tight rope acts. Um, I think this film made an impression to me because, one, it's a unique story, and two, I've had a grandmother who had Alzheimer's, and so I had some feelings about that, and yeah. I also just loved that Tracy Ellis Ross can add something to this movie if she's there for five minutes. And it also, it's, it's a truth where you're taking care of an older relative, but then you have a younger relative that dies first. So what do you do? You know, basically, your whole world is shaken up because you were all focused towards the older relative, but the younger relative is the one that needed the most care, but you mm. didn't know it at the time. Mm. And so your entire system is starting to fall apart in the way that you wanted to do things is falling apart. Also, you know, we have jobs, we pay the bills, we have—we sometimes have to give up our principles to pay the bills. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting part about American fiction is how many fiction writers have had to give up their principles, because they could write a story about a great-grandmother going across Europe, because that's an interesting story that means a lot to us. But then the agent might say, I just want an action book from you. <laughs> I, want, I want the next—what is that? Jack, we sure I want that. I right, want something right. more. Bam, bam, bam. Can you give that to me on my desk by next Friday? And we'll, we'll worry about your grandmother another day. Yeah, or, so give, or give me another Twilight or another Hunger Games. Yes, or give, exactly. me, give me some, one of these like uh, young adults, like teen fiction books. And yeah. I, mean, I mean, to your point, it's Fifty Shades of Grey started off as Twilight fan fiction. Yeah. So look at that person, that person's awakening in the money. So, yeah. Yeah, any, any mention of Fifty Shades of Grey means that I have to tell the story that when I wanted to uh, name the show, I did not vote for Now with Dave Brown. I wanted to call the show <laughs> Fifty Shades of Dave, and I was shouted down in the meeting. So, yeah, even, uh, even powerful television hosts uh, don't have as much power as they think they do. Uh, Michael, I want to ask you about the book here as well, because you mentioned that you read the book. Don't go too long on this, but how did the movie adapt the book well, and where did it fall short? Your question. So, interestingly, Erasure told me because it has the book within the book that he wrote. So, he wrote, what is it called? Um, oh, I can't even remember the name. But, uh, my pathology, which is, he gives the entire thing. He writes the entire novel within the novel. So I was hoping for something like that in the movie. I didn't know exactly how I would want it to be. 
and wanted it maybe to have a movie within a movie. And so I was a little bit disappointed that it didn't make us uncomfortable enough like the book within the book did, because it made you sit there and it made you read it. It's like 100 pages within a 200-page book. Wow. And so I wanted something that was that substantial, like, you know, if we're talking a two-hour movie and one-hour movie within the movie. Because, frankly, this is the stuff that makes people uncomfortable. But I understand the movie had other aims, and I, I don't mind those aims. Um, the other thing that I may comment on is that, again, with Tracy Ellis Ross, she was supposed to play the abortion doctor. But they didn't mention that she performed abortions in the movie, which, again, I think has catered into the audience a little bit too much. Yeah. Because um, I think we can we can handle that now, and we shouldn't be afraid of losing people just because they can't do practices abortions. Michael, got to be quick on this one, but the film has garnered quite a bit of critical acclaim, maybe even a little bit of awards buzz. It hasn't necessarily picked up wins. It has got some nominations. Do you think this is one of those movies that over the course of the next, let's call it, month and a half in the lead up to the Oscars, might have a shot at Best Picture? It's an interesting question. I think it's also like May, December. That it did a, they both did a terrible bet, and they both went against the conventions of the genres. So it's up to the Academy whether or not they can understand that play with genre or not. Um, and the marketing, I'm afraid, is going to be used against it, because really they should have marketed this movie as a family drama, starting right, with the right. family drama. Because, yes, they've got the Oscars. You've got the Oscar performances in there. You've got queuing for someone with dementia. You've got family dynamics. That's what the Oscars love. <clears throat> but I don't know if they love the publishing industry satire as much because we don't really talk about that very often. Mm -hmm. Michael, thank you for this. Thank you for the review. Have a lovely day. Talk to you next week. You too. See you soon. That is entertainment critic Michael McNeely with a review of American fiction. You can find it in select theaters. Just a note that it is rated R. Next week, Michael will review Poor Things starring Emma Stone. There you go, Emma Stone, keeping busy. Coming up next... How would you rate your cooking skills? Alex Smythe poses this question in a roundtable chat with Nazreen Abdel-Majid and Ramya Amuthan, and I have thoughts here as well. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. What a busy day on the mighty airwaves of AMI-television. Yes, it's about 10.45 a.m. Eastern time right now, and this show is nearing its end, which uh, always makes me happy because it means that uh, it's closer to my afternoon nap. It makes me a happy boy. But maybe today is one of these days where I'm not going to take a nap because Access Tech Live hits the air at noon Eastern time with more coverage from CES in Las Vegas. And then at 2 p.m. Eastern time, Kelly and Rumya hit the airwaves on AMI-tv. Just a fantastic lineup of live programming today. And Rumya Amuthan is taking some time out of her busy day to tell you more about the show. Hey, good morning, Rumya. Morning, Dave. And yeah, you can always take your naps between Access Tech Live and KR so that you can come back ah. refreshed after the hour, yeah? I, I'm, a, I'm a bad napper, though, Ramya. I'm one of these people that yeah. once the eyes close and I go underneath the covers, uh, I'm typically hours. gone for, yeah, three, four hours, and that causes mm -hmm. all kinds of other troubles. 
I can relate. I can relate. That's why I call it polyphasic sleeping, because really it's just like half a day of sleep and then <laughs> the I, other half later. So on Sunday night, I tried to go to bed at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time, and then my eyes shot open at 9 p.m., and I was like, oh, no, I've really oh. I've really messed this thing up. And I, I lived with the consequences of that one all day Monday. And then Tuesday, I took Tuesday off, right? And I did the same thing. I went to bed at 6.30 that night, and I was out till 5.30 a.m. the next morning. So 11 hours, Tuesday into Wednesday. Wow. That was a Delightful sleep. That sounds really a hibernation like. Yeah. Well, it is tis the time of the season, and I ate a bunch of yeah, macaroni that day, so the pasta helps you sleep. <laughs> okay. That's how pasta works. Uh, Rumpia, we are off track here. What's coming up on the show today? Okay, we're talking about, I guess, on the same line of things, forming good habits, breaking bad <laughs> habits. <laughs> Burton Lullum is going to tell us more about that to break it all down, she says. Also, during our accessible gaming segment, Marcus McCracken is breaking down uh, his experience with the new Mortal Kombat game. He's been playing it. He's got some sound for us as well. I'm really looking forward to his reviews on that. Uh, also, we have the Weekly Roundtable, of course, and host of the Globe and Mail on AMI-audio, Corinne Van Dusen, is going to join us then. Oh, a little dose of Corinne Van Dusen. Love Corinne. Always great when Corinne stops by to pop on the air. Ramya, stay right there because Alex Smythe, you've got this really fascinating story about food costs and food security, but it all starts with, um, I would say, a, a premise that I think is a little bit unfair, but I want to give you the opportunity to set it up. Yeah, Dave. So this all comes from a recent article that uh, interviewed food economist experts, and they claim that there is a decline in cooking skills, which is leading to people being unable to easily adapt to the rising cost of food. So they say the lack of mandatory education on cooking, the availability and, and vast array of prepared foods, and a lack of individual drive to learn new recipes have all contributed to this issue. So there, there's a lot to unpack within this topic, but we'll start here. Like, let's just do a basic roundtable check-in on how we would rate our cooking skills. So Ramya, We'll start with you. How would you rate your cooking skill? Like out of 10, um, I would say I'm pretty good. Like I give myself a B, B plus, and even on really good days, A's for things that I've been perfecting. But I really do find that I have a, a variety of ways that I think of cooking. Like sometimes I'm planning recipes out. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this was really inspiring. I want to try this at home and will, you know, take inspiration off of other people's. But then also there are times where I'm like, I don't have half the things that this recipe requires. So I'm just going to wing it slash put my own twist on it. So, you know, on the more creative end of the spectrum. So I enjoy that kind of thing as well. And then speaking of winging it, there's times where I'm just like, what do I have in the fridge? I'm just going to go with what I got and, and see what I can muster up. So there's kind of like these different, I guess, not levels necessarily, but stages of cooking that I've gone through and still go through that I enjoy all aspects of. It's not necessarily a, uh, you know, routine thing or just a creative thing. So I like that. I like hitting all these spots. All right, that, that's a really long answer. I'll, I'll, yeah, keep, I'll keep this a little bit shorter. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably like a six, Alex. I like mm -hmm. when I cook for myself. I always like the way my food tastes. I'm pretty good at yeah. cooking, but I'm but nice. I'm pretty basic. Like I I do not. I'm not an adventurous cooker. 
Right. I, I also want to just quickly point out how Ramya said she was going to grade herself out of 10 and then went with the, the letter grading. Yeah, I, just I picked, I picked yeah, up on sorry. that, too. I picked up on that, too. Uh, seven. What's a B? Okay, seven. So, yeah, I would say I'm about a seven as well. Like, I'm, I'm a very confident cook, but... I, I think what separates a seven from the 10 is like really going above and beyond, going very complicated, like getting to those home cook online YouTube level where you're making your own pastas and things like that. I'm not there. I, I don't need to do that, but I, I know enough around the kitchen to how to use any ingredient I have in a way that's going to taste good in the end. You know, as, as much as a conversation about our own cooking skills is relevant here, I think it's worth grappling with the premise of this article because I do think it's a little bit accusatory. Like, I was not super happy with the tone of some of these food experts being like, you know, it's your fault that you can't afford to feed yourself because you can't cook. And I think to myself about the people who are maybe doing two or three jobs to make ends meet. I think about people who are just trying to figure out a really high cost of living situation. And even if you just went out and bought lentils and beans and rice, Ramya, I, I, think, I think that it's really important that we don't start to getting into this finger pointing game of blaming personal finance for an unjust economic environment. Yes, that's really fair. Um, we do have, as you said, like the, our personal kind of circumstances, if you will, but we know that zooming out, there's a lot more going on that isn't necessarily just our capacity, our willingness, our, you know, lack of trying or whatever else on our ends. Uh, there's more to the objective understanding of, you know, this is happening right now where people are having a very hard time. Yeah. Look, look, Alex, I get the point of view. Like, like I do get the yeah. point of view, but, but I do worry that we get into this finger-pointing game, right? When, when people are like, oh, millennials with their avocado toast. No, it's million-dollar homes that we can't afford. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and there's multiple factors. You mentioned the beans and the lentils, Dave. Like, a part of this article, they've actually, like, they they do get some interviews with with. Uh, regular consumers and say, I don't know how to cook with lentils. I don't know how to cook with beans. You know, I can pick them up in a can. They're cheaper, but I don't know how to use it. And I think that's where some of this narrative is coming from, that people are having to use ingredients or, or looking to use cheaper alternatives that they may not have had experience with in the past. And so there, that's one angle of it. The other one is to, uh, and this has been something that I've noticed and it's manifested in some new apartment buildings that now they no longer even have like ovens or stoves yeah, built yeah. within these kitchens. It's just a microwave. And, and part of that argument, they say, well, you know, the millennials are not uh, cooking at home. They're just doing the takeout, yada, yada. They're buying and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, but then also to that's not everyone. Anyone can rent an apartment. If you're not putting in a stove, then they don't have any other options other than using a microwave solely or a hot plate. Like you're limiting that. And it's not like these units are any cheaper not having a stove. <laughs> yeah, these these micro condos of 300 square feet that still cost yeah. half a million dollars and don't have a kitchen. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really, really appreciate this. Uh, go tell me that I should learn to cook rice. But Ramya, I do, I do maybe pick up on the broader point here. And this is something the three of us have explored in separate conversations on this roundtable and off the air. 
It really sometimes does boil down to the education system and home economics courses that probably should be teaching people how to cook with really like basic cheap ingredients like rice, beans, lentils, and, you know, be able to fill your own taxes out, right? Like these home ec classes that are these classes that you're taking in school, it makes, it makes me wonder what the obligation is as a society to at least give people some of these raw skills. Like I remember my home ec class, they taught us how to make spaghetti. Congratulations. You taught me how to boil water. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, clearly you eat a lot of mac and cheese, so it helped. But the, <laughs> thing is, the thing is, even for me, like I went to an integrated school system and um, during those home ec classes, I still felt very much isolated or like not leaving those classes with an understanding of how to live independently, how to do these things, how to cook, whatever. So there were, um, thankfully, a lot of other programs, like things offered by the CNIB, where people could come into your home and teach you how to use your kitchen, your utensils, and and learn how to cook in your ways. But even then, it's so uh, sporadic, right? Like these experiences across the board are not all equal. And so many people with disabilities are like, well, we didn't get that where we live. Alex, last thought going to you here uh, in regards to maybe the obligation of an education system here. But I love what Ramya brought up, how some some institutions and organizations like the CNIB are offering those kinds of trainings. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's great to hear. And I, I think there certainly needs to be a, a rethink of education overall and what the value is, what we are trying to achieve. We want people to be independent adults once they graduate high school. So having mandatory, in some way, shape or form, life skill class that could include personal finance, that could include cooking skills, that could include maintaining your, your space would all be valuable. I remember back in, in university in second year where I was living in a house with uh, five other people, I was running my own cooking classes with my housemates because they didn't know how to cook. So I, I would tell them, go pick up supplies. What do you want to cook? Let me know and I will teach you how to do it. So I was teaching how to make pork chops with mashed potatoes and, and carrots and things like that. And then my housemates were like, oh my goodness, like now I know, I, I, I feel accomplished. I can have entertainment. And it's like, it's sometimes, it, if you don't take those steps or you don't have that opportunity and you don't really face it until you're in the need that you need to learn how to cook for yourself, you're going to feel very overwhelmed and lost. So I think the earlier you can set that tone and, and, and get that process going, the easier it's going to be for you overall. And you're going to feel more that sense of accomplishment. Yeah. Over Christmas, I uh, peeled carrots for probably probably the first time in years because usually mm-hmm. I just buy the baby carrots at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, baby carrots, good enough. And then I peeled these carrots and I was like, these taste so much better. These taste so much oh, better so than the baby carrots. And I was uh, yeah. very delighted with myself. So, yeah, uh, expert carrot peeler, Dave Brown over here. Invite me to your next uh, kid, uh, dinner party. Uh, Ramya, Alex, thank you both for this. Thank you. Thank you. That's Ramya and within an Alex Smite. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry. Things kick off again tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time. The news panel gets together. And healthcare once again is on deck. So you don't want to miss that one. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. 
Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.